This is the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast, where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. everybody and welcome to episode 46 placement decisions nursing home or assisted living so you've made the hard decision it's time for placement in a facility but now you are faced with all of these options so one of the questions i get so often is how is a nursing home different from an assisted living? Or what in the world is a memory care facility? How can I figure out which is best for my family member? And even if I choose one, what are some of the implications financially? So these are all really good questions. And I will also suggest I have previous episodes. I think 33 was one of them and possibly episode 40, but I've, I've previous episodes where I've talked about if you are selecting a memory care unit in an assisted living, what are the questions to ask? What are some of the items you want to check out? Because the reality is many of these facilities are marketed for you. They have colors and amenities that you're looking at thinking, this is pretty sweet. But the layout, the colors, the amenities, the type of carpet, all of these things, while they may be aesthetically pleasing to you, they may not be appropriate for the brain changes and the sensory changes that occur when you have a loved one living with dementia. And some of these facilities have environments that actually can make behaviors worse. So that's just something to consider. For example, I was in a new memory care facility and the owners of the chain were there and they were so proud of their really cool memory care unit. But it was obvious to me that the people who designed it knew basically jack shit about older adults and people living with dementia. There was a lot of pastel colors and the pastel colors were slight, there were were different, the pastel colors were very similar. So they were trying to do accent walls and maybe have transition changes like in hallways with the different colors, but they were all different shades of blue and green. And while those are very soothing colors, as we age, our corneas tend to yellow. And so people have difficulty telling the difference between certain shades of blue and certain shades of green. They look or they appear very similar to the older adult. And by using this color scheme, they were failing to utilize the environment 
to let the person living with dementia know that there were transitions going on, that they were going from one room to another, that they were going down a hallway. And it's subtle things like this that can work against a person living with dementia who transitions to a facility. So I just thought that was very interesting. And another aspect of this facility that caused me to pause was their insistence on how awesome their aromatherapy room was. They had a room dedicated to aromatherapy. That's great, except for many types of dementia, especially Alzheimer's, one of the first things that go are the nerves that run and form the enterorhinal complex. That's a small highway of nerves that are important in allowing us to identify odors. So when I identify lavender or coffee, those scents have specific emotions for me. Lavender is calming. Coffee means home. That's me. I love coffee. But if I have dementia and my entorhinal complex is disintegrating, I'm not going to be able to detect odor or identify odor. So I may be unaware that I'm smelling lavender or I'm smelling coffee. So to me, having an aromatherapy room without understanding basic dementia neurobiology was stupid. And yes, I have family caregivers who say, oh yes, I use lavender scented hand cream with my mom every night. It might not be the lavender scented hand cream. It may be the hand cream and the gentle touch that you are providing that is soothing your mom. And yes, the lavender is the cherry on top, but you're probably smelling the lavender and calming yourself down, which is feeding into her calm vibes. But the lavender may not be detected by your family member. So this is an example of facilities marketing to the caregivers and creating amenities that you will find attractive, but may not necessarily translate to quality care for your loved one. And that's why my podcast and blog is here to help you out. Okay, so I'm going to dive into the meat of this podcast. Assisted living facilities are generally described as what's called a congregate residential setting. That means a bunch of people in a setting that is not a hospital, it's residential. And these settings provide 24-hour supervision, at least two meals daily, and an array of personal and health-related services. Almost 60% of assisted living facilities do provide skilled nursing services. And what are skilled nursing services? These are services defined as medical activities that must be legally performed by a registered nurse or a licensed practical nurse. Assisted living facilities are licensed by individual states, meaning there are no consistent requirements for the quantity and quality of caregiving personnel. That means an assisted living in one state may have to adhere 
to very stringent guidelines because that state is on top of it. Whereas in another state, the guidelines are looser and the quality of assisted livings are not governed by strict requirements or regulations. So you may find a lot of variability in one assisted living from another, even in the same geographic area. And a little history lesson, assisted livings popped up in, I want to say the late 90s, early 2000s to serve an important market segment. You had people who wanted to leave their homes or their family members wanted a little extra supervision. Maybe there was some frailty going on or mom didn't, wasn't cooking for herself anymore. She didn't feel safe living by herself. And these assisted livings were essentially senior apartments with extra support and staff. And they were developed as an intermediate step because prior to the assisted livings, the only stark two choices were living at home with as much community support as you could muster. And again, community support varies from geographic region to geographic region or a nursing home and nursing homes have been developed as from a medical model. So nursing homes, historically, they've gotten better, but historically were much more strict about regulations and what time you get out of bed and when you can get your bath. And for someone who need, needed a little extra support and help, but didn't need the services, the extensive services of a nursing home, the assisted livings made sense. However, more and more assisted livings are marketing themselves as memory care units or offering memory care services. And that is somewhat of a misnomer because what many facilities mean by memory care is, okay, we have a locked unit and I'm going to dive a little deeper And again, I would definitely listen to the previous podcast. If you're not listening in order, if you're just finding me or you're bebopping around, that's fine. But go back to the episodes where I talk about five questions to ask and other episodes where I talk about long-term care to get a better handle on this issue. Assisted living facilities, like I said, are rapidly replacing nursing homes as the preferred setting for residential long-term care of persons with dementia. And I think part of that is the emotional baggage and voltage we have around the term nursing home. So many of our parents and grandparents remember nursing homes from the 70s, 80s, and 90s where they were much more problematic, especially I would say in the 70s and 80s where they were really bona fide institutions and less home-like. And your mom, dad, grandmother, grandfather, aunt, uncle, they may have memories of going to visit a family member in a nursing home and being appalled by the conditions. So now they're telling you, whatever you do, don't put me in a nursing home. And that's not a fair thing for a family member to ask because depending on their care needs and the care that you can safely provide, That is a promise that you may not be able to keep. 
And I've already decided I have not asked my kids for that promise because I don't know what the future holds. And I think it's a shitty thing to say to a daughter, son, a caregiver, whatever you do, don't put me in a facility because in some cases, placement may be the best option. And, I, and that's why I think people are so enamored of assisted livings because they're not called nursing homes. So it's a semantic thing. Oh, I didn't put my mom in a nursing home. She went to the assisted living. And again, the assisted living can be a great choice or it can't. So let me explain a little more. About 1 million older adults and growing reside in one of the 30,000 plus assisted living facilities in the U.S. And there was a national study of long-term care providers that provided that statistic. And again, these stats are a little dated because there's always a lag between when data are collected and finally presented. The last stat I saw was that almost 90% of assisted living residents have dementia. Uh, they didn't report how severe, but there's some type of cognitive impairment going on. In contrast, 1.5 million people live in one of 16,000 nursing homes, and that was per the nursing home data compendium. And again, these figures are also dated. And by their statistics, 61% are living with dementia in nursing homes. I think that statistic is low based on my experiences currently in nursing homes. But again, those are the data that are out there. Nursing homes, as I've mentioned earlier, are generally settings that provide closer supervision and tend to be aligned with the hospital or medical model. Although that is rapidly changing as nursing homes are striving to become more home and less nursing and less medical. In a nursing home, all meals and medications are provided. 24-7 licensed nurse supervision is available. And caveat, licensed, that doesn't automatically mean RN. It can mean an LPN. And nursing homes are regulated by Medicare and have certified Medicare beds. That nursing home regulation by Medicare has pros and cons. So I want to talk about the difference in how nursing homes and assisted living facilities are inspected and monitored, the difference in oversight. Nursing homes are inspected every year by surveyors who check to see if the facilities are following the rules the regulations that are in the uh, Code of Federal Regulations, I think it's CFR 42, is has an entire section all about nursing homes. How many beds they can have, how many nurses per bed. I think this, there's even granular regulations about how tall the toilets have to be or the, 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 the maximum height, the minimum height. There are very detailed regulations that administrators have to know and memorize. These nursing homes are inspected every year by surveyors and the surveyors have a list of rules and regs that they evaluate the nursing home to see if they're following said rules. And some of these rules even 
cover prescribing practices, prescribing drugs that are used to reduce or stop behaviors, such as antipsychotics. In fact, there's been a movement since 2011 to lower the use of antipsychotics in nursing homes nationally, although some states, including my home state of Alabama, are still way above the national average for the prescription of antipsychotics. And you can go onto sites like Nursing Home Compare. You just type that into your search engine and fine. You can you go to the homepage and you can look at your state and even your city and your region. You can type in nursing homes and you can look at how nursing homes in your region compare to national averages for things like antipsychotic usage, bed sores, and urinary tract infections, and other quality markers that Medicare identifies as important. So going back to the nursing home inspections, when surveyors find violations, they issue what are called F-tags. These F-tags have various degrees of severity, such as no residents were harmed or potential for harm, all the way to residents in imminent harm. F-tags for serious infractions do come with monetary penalties, known as civil penalties. These monetary penalties are returned to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, who then distribute these monies (laughs) to individuals or groups who compete for funding for projects that improve nursing home care. I've been awarded two such civil money penalty contracts, one for a project that we finished last year, Brushing Away Infections, where my team helped six nursing homes improve their delivery of oral hygiene activities. I'm currently in charge of one that involves improving dementia care and reducing the use of antipsychotics. If you're looking at a nursing home, you could even ask, hey, are you involved with in projects with outside individuals to improve care, like civil money penalty projects? And it's interesting to find out if the nursing home is willing to be part of these projects. Some are very willing, some are not. Just good to know. Assisted livings, on the other hand, are inspected by health departments, the same health departments who check out Taco Bell and McDonald's and decide if the restaurants need to be closed. The inspection time may vary. Often, the facilities are inspected once when they're opened and then they do not receive an inspection unless complaints are filed. And even then, it may take a slew of complaints before the state inspectors show up from the health department. Federal oversight does have disadvantages. Nursing homes are held to very specific rules and standards, which may limit how home-like a room may be or prevent the kitchen from serving soft-boiled eggs because of a potential for salmonella. Now, I know people who have eaten soft-boiled eggs their entire life, and should they go into a facility, they want their soft-boiled eggs. 
but the facility may say we can't do that because we don't want to get in trouble with the state. So there are pros and cons of that much oversight. One of the pros is nursing homes are expected to handle behaviors like yelling or wandering. They're encouraged to use non-drug approaches for these behaviors. What's interesting is most nursing homes rarely kick out a person with dementia who shows difficult or challenging behaviors. Assisted living facilities, on the other hand, will involuntarily discharge someone with the same behaviors or insist that the family hire 24-7 sitters, which if the family could afford in the first place, the person wouldn't be in an assisted living. And I have a problem with that because you have assisted living facilities charging 5 to 10 k a month and they want you to hire around-the-clock people to sit with your loved one. My response is, what the hell are you doing, assisted living? So I get a little um, upset when I hear about that. When you are looking at an assisted living, ask about their behavior policies because many of them have policies where aggressive behavior results in an automatic transfer to the emergency department or to a psychiatric facility. In my opinion, this is a terrible policy because some aggressive behaviors may be a legitimate reaction to the environment. And I'm going to give you an example. One of my clients placed her dad in an assisted living facility that she and her family thought was really nice and would provide great care. And everything was good for a couple of months. Then there was a holiday, I don't know, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas, something. Because of the holiday, there were many family members who were visiting. My client's dad was a very large man, but also very friendly and gregarious, former law enforcement, used to being in charge, and he was trying to find his room, became confused, and walked into the room of another resident. And this resident's family members reacted very aggressively toward him. Instead of just saying, hey, buddy, I think you're in the wrong room, one of the family members, a male, stood up and started yelling at my client's father. Hey, you're in the wrong room. Get out of here. You're upsetting my mom. And my client's dad did not take kindly to what he saw as aggressive and rude behavior. So he turned around and yelled back at the family member and, and said something along the lines of, Hey buddy, you want to yell at me like that? I'll knock your ass down or something that a typical alpha male would come back with if challenged. And the family members went to the person in charge and said, hey, this is what happened, didn't discuss their, shall we say, their uh, contribution to the problem. And the altercation was witnessed by some of the nursing assistants who tried to explain to the person in charge, look, the family members triggered this behavior. They really didn't need to be that aggressive. But the facility had a policy, oh, this person showed aggressive behavior, he threatened a family member, 
he gets an automatic discharge, not automatic discharge, an automatic transfer to the emergency department for a workup. And I will tell you when emergency departments get this type of transfer, they're looking at each other going, what do you want us to do? Now, oftentimes the emergency department may look for an infection like a urinary tract infection or dehydration or some metabolic reason for increased confusion, increased irritability, but that may or may not be the case. And this was a situation where the assisted living facility really screwed up. Her client, her, her, my client's dad was transferred to the ER where he got very upset about that. He wound up getting sedated, wound up getting transferred to the psych unit. They messed with all of his meds. And when he came back, he was actually much worse than when he had left. So that was a, a total mess. So this is a policy you want to ask about. If there are behaviors, how does the facility respond? Okay, so I'm going to take a quick break. And when I get back, I'm going to talk more about choosing an option for your family member. So which one, assisted living or nursing home, is the best option for my loved one? One very important driver is cost. In some states, assisted living facilities do accept Medicaid. In others, they don't. If you live in a state where the assisted living facilities do accept Medicaid, this is great for seniors with very limited financial resources. The assisted living option would be more financially feasible than a nursing home option in this case because it will likely be less expensive and less restrictive depending on the needs of your family member. However, if your loved one is in the hospital for three or more continuous nights and meets Medicare requirements, such as needing physical occupational speech therapy, you will need to find a rehabilitation facility, often a nursing home with a short stay or rehab unit. This is because Medicare pays for 100 days of skilled nursing and therapeutic care, such as physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, wound care, and other items that are considered necessary and meeting the skilled nursing care definition. But Medicare will only pay for this benefit in certified facilities. They have to be Medicare certified. Part, Medicare Part A covers all costs for the first 20 days of a rehabilitation stay. Then Medicare Part A charges the beneficiary $165 in coinsurance each day until day 100, assuming that the person is still receiving the services and making progress. And here's another important caveat. You may be looking at your loved one saying, shoot, they're not ready to go home, but the physical or occupational or speech therapist may, who is working with your loved one, may have noted that in the past week, your family member has made no progress. They've reached a certain state of recovery and they're not progressing anymore. 
And when that happens, the facility has no choice but to discharge them into your care or for you to make arrangements for another transfer. And some family members will go to facilities that offer continuing care. These are continuing care retirement communities, CCRCs. And these are facilities that often have multiple levels of care on the same campus. So you might have the assistant livings on this side of campus, and then you have the main nursing home that offers skilled services, and then you have the short-stay rehab facility that's either in the nursing home or is yet another building. And this way, there's some continuity of care because your family member stays in the same place. And in some facilities, they may have your family member even stay in their same room because they may not have a dedicated rehabilitative unit, but rather they have the physical therapy department. And no matter where you are in the facility, if you're getting skilled nursing services, you your family member goes to the speech and physical therapy area, and that's where they get their therapy. So it doesn't matter where they are in the facility. So those are all items to consider as you were faced with these decisions. And if you're thinking, oh, this is good to know. I don't need this right now. That's great because it's good to know this information when you are not in dire need of it. So you can start looking around and listening to families and friends and getting maybe some advice from trusted medical professionals about potential options should the need arise. Now, one thing you may want to be careful about is there are many freestanding rehabilitative facilities. And some of these freestanding rehabilitative facilities, they're not associated with a nursing home. They may not be prepared for people living with dementia. And it's a good question to ask about how they handle people living with dementia, because some facilities may say, oh, your loved one has dementia. They're not suitable for physical therapy or occupational therapy. That's not necessarily true. It depends on the stage of the dementia and the needs of your loved one. So a dementia diagnosis doesn't automatically say they cannot participate in rehab activities. It, it's dependent on the individual. So that's also something to be aware of if you get that type of pushback. And if your loved one is in a hospital setting and the hospital is discharging them and there's no way you can provide the level of care and the safety that they need, and I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, but it won't be the first time, you can tell the social worker, I can't take my family member home. I need them to be placed somewhere and I need your help because I've had family members told, get a phone call on a Wednesday morning and the, the person on the phone is telling them, hey, your dad's being discharged today. And you're like, what? Wait, he needs a hospital bed. He's incontinent. Like he walked into the hospital and then something happened and he's been in the hospital for a few weeks and now he's so 
debilitated, I don't have the resources or the knowledge or the skills to take care of him and provide the level of safe and appropriate care for his needs. And that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's the truth. You may be a CPA or a CEO and you're great at what you do, or maybe you run a restaurant business and you are awesome in that business, but you haven't received education and training in caregiving. You don't know what the hell you're doing. And you taking your loved one home might make things worse. So it is okay to tell the social worker, I'm not equipped. I don't have the resources. We need to find a transitionary place for mom or dad to get stronger and get some rehab, get some therapy, some rehabilitation, and then we can go from there. If you think that permanent placement may be coming down the road, this is where you utilize the need for a rehabilitation. Man, there's something about the word rehabilitative that I'm struggling with today. But anyway, you want to find a place that offers rehabilitative services and can take over placement or your family member can stay there should they not become strong enough or if they continue to decline and home care is no longer reality. So that's something to think about. The thing, going back to the cost, there are Medigap policies that cover the coinsurance. And if your family member is receiving, I want to say, TRICARE from the, from the military, TRICARE does cover the co-payments and the, the co-insurance. But that's, again, something to investigate and look into. I would recommend speaking with the hospital social worker and the facility social worker and getting any information about co-pays and whether or not they'll accept your Medigap or your TRICARE, getting this information in writing. Now, you may think, yeah, we can just go to an assisted living facility. Nope, they are not certified by Medicare. Even if they offer identical services Medicare will not pay for the post-hospital care in an assisted living facility. And most major health insurance companies follow Medicare's lead. They may pay for the physical therapy services and the skilled nursing services themselves, but they're not going to pay the full cost of the assisted living. And that's where financially a nursing home with rehab services may be a better financial option than an assisted living. Now, going back to memory care, because a lot of places advertise they have memory care units. There are no standards for memory care. In some states, like Alabama, any assisted living facility who admits people living with dementia must be licensed as a specialty care assisted living facility, or what's called a SCALF. SCALFs are locked, secured facilities, and staff having direct resident contact are mandated in Alabama by the Dementia Education and Training Act, also known as DITA. 
and they have to receive very specific dementia training. Damn, that sounds great, doesn't it? Nope. It's bullshit, and here's why. The training materials were developed in 1997 and last updated maybe 2008, and the content is frankly wrong. For example, there's content in there that states, psychiatric symptoms usually respond to medication. Nope. Some of the content is insulting. For example, 50 to 60% of all nursing home residents are demented, end quote. I saw that and I was not a happy camper. While Alabama is held up as a good example and model for scalps because of this mandatory dementia training, this is a situation where the principle and the idea looks great on paper, but the reality is terrible. And that's why I get contracts and offers to go into assisted livings and do the training because what I offer is way better than DITA, which is outdated. And for the record, I have gone to the Alabama Department of Public Health and have offered to update DITA and have not received any um, takers on my offering to do and to put together a contract and a plan. But I put my money, I put, yeah, I put my money where my mouth is. I don't just sit here and do the podcasts. I do believe passionately in this stuff and I want to make it better. But sometimes state entities are pretty happy with the status quo. I don't understand why, but it really makes me unhappy. Again, to summarize this, you can obtain information about nursing homes using the Nursing Home Compare website, and I'll put the link in the show notes, which contain important Medicare information and inspection results. The information, though, is a couple of years behind, but you can see trends with items like staffing, infections, and bed sores. There are no sites like this, to my knowledge, for assisted living facilities that are created by a third party. I would also recommend going to your state's health department websites and seeing if they post information about assisted living facilities there on the site. And you may want to, again, talk to family, friends, other healthcare providers, especially nurses, who may know some of the behind the scenes information about specific facilities. Another caveat is the quality of a facility is highly dependent on the administrator. That's been documented in nursing home literature and peer-reviewed journals. I've seen it in action. So I've recommended facilities where the administrator was freaking awesome and the facility was amazing. Then five, six years down the road, the facility is, or not the facility, the administrator is promoted or the administrator retires or the the administrator goes goes somewhere else. And next thing you know, the facility has plummeted. The quality has just disintegrated. And that's unfortunate. So that's why, I'll be honest, when people ask me to recommend facilities, I usually can say, right now, today, this facility is doing pretty good, and their administrator is who I highly respect, and they do a great job. But 
that can change. And it sucks, but that is the reality. And I am going to switch gears for a second because I wanted the next thing I'm going to talk about, I wanted to create its own little podcast, but the information wasn't enough. So I'm going to tag it on here. And that is how often should I visit a memory care resident when they first go in? So if I take my mom and we transition her to memory care or to the nursing home, like how often do we visit? First, some facilities do have a no visiting policy for X amount of weeks. And if you're comfortable with that, fine. If you're not comfortable with that, you may want to find a different facility or negotiate that, uh, an exception to that. And really the answer to how often should you visit really depends on the physical and mental condition of both parties. Some caregivers are so worn out that by the time placement happens, they need a break and they may want a, a week or two to not go there and to recover from their own illness or their own physical exhaustion. Location of the facility also affects visiting schedules. Optimally, as I said in a previous podcast, daily visits are good because it allows the family to see how the individual is adjusting to the new surroundings and if the new facility and personnel are responsive to the needs of the family member. On the other hand, quality outweighs quantity. One of the worst things a family member can do is to go and visit and immediately start quizzing the person living with dementia. Do you know who I am? Have you forgotten me? Please don't do this. And you wind up having a very negative interaction and then you leave and the person remains in a negative frame of mind for hours after you, you leave. Visitors who accept the person with dementia as he or she is and who happily listens to the repetitive stories or some of the mixed up memories without judgment or argument create a more positive experience. So I really think you want to play this by ear, consult with the facility, think about your knowledge of your family member and what may be the, the best. And when you do visit, it may be good to schedule your visit around that. So your visit occurs when there is a time that would make sense for a natural departure, because oftentimes family members come in and they visit and then they look at their watch and go, okay, I'm going to leave. And they walk out the door and the person living with dementia walks with them. And then they walk through the locked door and the person living with dementia is told, no, you can't leave. And now you have a problem. It's a good idea to schedule your visit so that it coincides after say 20 minutes or half an hour, lunch or dinner or bedtime, or they have to go to physical therapy. So this way you're not walking out the door and they're watching you. You're, you say to them, oh, it's lunchtime. You go get your lunch and I'll go get something to eat. I'll see you later. And then go. Don't make a big production out of it. Or if it's dinner time or bedtime or physical therapy. Oh, you have to go to physical therapy. Cool. All right. You go to therapy. I'm going to go run some errands and I'll see you later. And you keep it vague. I'll see you later. 
because you will see them later. It might be later today. It might be later this week. It might be later next month, but it's later. You don't want to say to a person living with dementia, oh, I'll be here in three weeks because you're just going to get upset, argument, and all sorts of behaviors. So that's my standard. Oh, okay. You're going to X. I'm going to go get a meal, run errands, go put the grandkids to bed, whatever you're going to do. I'll see you later. Love you. Bye-bye. And then go. And I think having a departure plan in place that coincides with the normal rhythms of the facility will make the situation easier for all involved. Okay. So ultimately, come up with a routine that works for you and your family member. And also check back with the staff to see if your visits make things better or worse. And if worse, what you can do to maybe adjust the visits so that you may not be triggering behaviors. Thank you for listening to my podcast. I appreciate all my listeners who are growing daily. And thank you to the awesome people who are emailing me with questions, with comments. I really appreciate the the reach out and the feedback. You all are awesome. And most importantly, I think it's great that we're working together to make dementia your bitch. And if you love the podcast, you can also get the book on amazon.com where a lot of this content is in written form. And there's some stuff that I dive deep in the book that I really can't go into on the podcast, but it's out there for as a resource and I hope you find it helpful. Okay, everybody, take care. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your B, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.